0: Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, there is um, a Bible in the seat in front of you. Um, and we're on page 775. Um, in those Bibles there. I don't know your Bible, what what page you might be on, but in those black Bibles in front of you, uh, we're on page 775. And so as we have seen these first few weeks in Jonah um, is that Jonah is not, we have to catch this, Jonah is ultimately not a story about a fish or about a prophet. It's not about a city. It's not about a sea. It's about God. Jonah's a story about God. It's telling us something about who God is. It's telling us something fundamental and subjective, uh, subjective about who God is. This is, or is it objective? Objective. I get those two mixed up. Telling us something objective about God. It cannot be changed. This is immutable. It's an immutable characteristic of God that he is merciful. You cannot change that about God. And so what this is telling us about God is that, is that God is a God who is compassionate, who pursues us. Who is merciful? All of that, of course, is in light of His justice and the wrath that we do see from God. But the, but the truth is, is that a this is a God who, at nearly every turn, is offering a way for people to come out from underneath that wrath and that justice by providing and offering them a way of salvation. And so, yes, wrath, yes, justice, but yes, mercy. Yes, compassion. Yes, salvation. And so as we said last week that the main miracle in this story is not a man-eating fish. It's a, it's a man-saving God, right? It's a man-saving God. Not a, like the man-eating fish is a miracle, right? Like that's a big deal for a dude to get swallowed by a fish and spit out. That's a miracle, we, we confess. But more of a miracle is that a holy God would save sinful man. And we have to be captivated by that story. And so let's read together verses one through three of chapter three. Follow along with me there in the scriptures. The word of God reads like this. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey and breadth. Jonah three should sound to us a lot like Jonah one. Hey, did you notice that? If, I know a lot of us have some some like short-term memory stuff, but like Jonah three should sound to us like Jonah chapter one. In fact, if you kind of just compare the two, um, you, you have Jonah chapter three, verse one says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, chapter one, verse one says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Verse two of chapter three, arise and go to Nineveh. Chapter one, verse two, arise and go to Nineveh. Chapter uh, three, uh, verse three, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Chapter one of, uh, uh, verse three of chapter one, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. There are even, I think, even similarities and distinctions in the response of the other people in the story. So you've got Jonah kind of the main, you've got God as the main guy. Okay, let's just address that first of all. That the main guy in the story of Jonah is who? God. And then Jonah. Then you've got this other group of people. You've kind of got a bunch of different groups of people at work. So, so even look at verse 5 of both chapters. Verse 5 of chapter 1 says that the mariners were afraid and cried out to his God. Look what verse five, chapter three says. The people of Nineveh believed God. And so you've got these things in light of disobedience and you've got these things in light of obedience and different responses from different people. Look at verse five again of chapter one. They hurled cargo. Look at verse five of chapter three. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. They hurled their clothes. They they took their clothes off and they put on sackcloth. Verse Six of chapter one. You've even got a, kind of another person in this story. There's not like a. I'm not trying to argue like there's there's direct here, but I think it's pretty interesting. Verse six of chapter one. The captain came and said. Verse six of chapter three. The king arose from his throne. So as interesting as and as intentional. By the way, as we kind of developed last week, we, we think that there's we think that there's some intentionality in the way this story's being written. Like, like some some personality, even and whoever 's writing this there 's some personality coming out, and there 's some intentionality coming out and so I do think that whoever 's writing this is saying hey we 're going to kind of like pen, you know kind of teeter totter some of these these facts of, of what happened but as interesting and intentional as all this is, the key distinction that we are meant to see through these first three verses is that Jonah obeys the Lord, that Jonah wants a disobedient prophet now on the heels of his of his uh Enlightening journey in the whale um, now chooses to obey the Lord. And so, this is certainly a complex obedience, right? Because as we get into chapter four, we're going to see okay, Jonah obeyed, but th- this isn't like a, a, a delight, a, an obedience of delight. We're going to talk a little bit next week about begrudging obedience and delightful obedience. This is a, what looks like a begrudging obedience to the Lord. So it's a complex obedience. Um, so Jonah obeys the Lord and it's complex, um, but much of which, like we said, is addressed in chapter four, a few things for us to consider up to this point. So where have we been in Jonah? So listen in real quick. Three, three just quick applications, and these are not my three points. We got a lot more to go after this. Three quick things that will, that will help us and I think shape us and help us us understand some things about ourselves. You've probably said something like this to your children or maybe your parents said this to you. Delayed or partial obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience or partial obedience is 100% disobedience, Um, especially in regards to the Lord. If the Lord calls you to do something and you delay in what he has called you to do or you are partial in your obedience, you are disobeying the Lord. And so Jonah has been disobedient to the Lord. Has he been redeemed? It seems that that in some way um, he has has acknowledged before the Lord his disobedience. We don't really see, something we were talking about this week, we don't really see full-on repentance from Jonah. We see he acknowledged that the Lord saved him, but partial obedience is disobedience. But more than that, I think what we need to see, since this is mainly a story about God and not Jonah, is that even though partial obedience or disobedience Uh, delayed obedience as disobedience, more than that, what we should see is that God is patient with us, right? Jonah has disobeyed and God sent the fish. God said, I'm not done with you. Yes, you are disobeying. Yes, you are running. The third thing that we need to see, and we're going to see this a lot more in this text, is that God will use and he will redeem even our disobedience to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, so Jonah thinks he's running from God and he's gonna, he's gonna undermine this whole thing, but God's like, Jonah, I am on your heels, buddy, and I'm gonna use you regardless. And so these things are vitally important for us to understand. And so it's easy, here's, here's something that's easy to do. It's easy for us to hold Jonah up as this rebel or this, this knucklehead, right? Like, like I said a couple weeks ago, I have these emotions in me. Sometimes Jonah's the worst, and other times like, man, Jonah makes a lot of sense. So we have this, this tendency to hold him up as a rebel or a an knucklehead and miss the fact that so many of us are just like Jonah. We do this a lot with Peter, right, in the New Testament. Like, we look at Peter over and over again, it's like, ah, oh, Peter, like, why don't you get it? Why don't you understand this? Why don't you get it? Jonah certainly, though, is not one to be emulated in fact, if we read the scriptures, this is an important thing for us to understand, especially like as we teach our kids, you know, like we all grew up saying like we need to be just like David or just like Jonah or whatever, but if we read the scriptures through the lens of emulating all of these Bible characters, we may be missing the point of the scriptures. We may be missing the fact that these, these men, these, these, these fallible men and women in scriptures were supposed to point us to something greater to, to, to strive for. Who's that? Jesus. Easy answer, right? Just like soft toss. That Jesus is the perfect one. That Jesus is our righteousness. That, that though we may in fact be like Jonah and m- many of us may, may be sinful like him and sinful like David, that Jesus is the one that we strive to be like, and so, like I said, they they do often teach us something about ourselves. Maybe they serve as a mirror for our own weaknesses. So remember, we know from from history that the Ninevites were known to make like a game, sport, sporting, and hobby out of dismembering and impaling their enemies. I mean, like physical dismemberment and impaling and like, in fact, you can go and you can do some research research, uh, that there are, yeah, you're like, I don't want to look at that. You can do research that there has been like carvings and artwork uncovered in excavations from this time where it shows the Assyrians doing these things to to its captors. And so, you know, that, 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 weird little thing on, on I-40 when you're going through downtown, they call it like the scissor tail bridge, like that monument. That's like our like our state artwork. Well like the national artwork of this place was impaling <laughs> these people. I don't and so Jonah had rational what what I'm trying to say here is Jonah had rational reasons. Because of what we've learned about the Ninevites, Jonah had rational reasons to disobey God, right? Going there would have been a suicide mission. Going there, he would have been a traitor to his people. Going there later, he's gonna say, God, I knew that you would show them mercy. He he doesn't want these people to, to come to know God. And he even has rational reasons for not going. But as rational as it may be, you know what it still is? It's disobedience. We don't want to overcomplicate that. We don't want to oversimplify it either. Because we oftentimes can find rational reasons to disobey God, can't we? I mean, we, we have all sorts of rational reasons. I'm just, you know, I'm just busy. I'm, you know, wh- whatever that may be. I don't wanna throw anything out from here. But if, if we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, it's, it's hard for us to even have a category in our minds today because of everything that's going on and all the noise around us. And all the things that, it's just so, that are so accessible, all the pleasures that are so accessible to us at our fingertips, it's hard for us to even have a category in our minds for, for godly obedience, to just simply follow the Lord in obedience. We become so distracted and so numb to what God is calling for us to do that it's hard to even like, recognize the need to obey God to be obedient towards him. The simple fact of obeying what God would have us to do. This is why I ask this question so often. I've asked this question a few times because it's actually been a question in my own heart. Like I've, the Lord has convicted me of this. The question of, of if the spirit of God were to speak to us, which do you believe that the Holy Spirit of God is alive and active and speaks to us? Yes, he speaks to us through his word. I don't want anybody to freak out over this like, I believe that the Holy Spirit still speaks to us, not in a way that's gonna contradict what's in the word, but I believe firmly in the voice of God. I've never heard his voice audibly, but I have sensed the Holy Spirit saying, this is an area that you need greater faithfulness or obedience in. And I haven't been able to like, find in, in my Bible you know, the, the exact words of like, you need to go apologize to your kid. you know. But I think the Holy Spirit speaks when he convicts and says, "Hey." you are a jerk. You need to go apologize to your kid. So I believe that the Holy Spirit speak to us. And so this question of if the Spirit of God were to speak to us, would we hear him? Because of all the distractions that are going on. And that's only part of it, by the way. That's only part of the the equation here that this Holy Spirit of God would speak to our hearts and our minds. Because the second question is, is if we heard the Holy Spirit speak to us, would we obey him? Would we be obedient? Or would we, as the scriptures say is possible to do, would we quench the spirit? Would we say, you know, when, when the scriptures tell us not to quench the Holy Spirit, it I think it assumes that that, that the Spirit is speaking, that, that, we, that we are aware of the Spirit convicting us, and that we quench him when we disobey. We quench when we do not obey what the Lord says, and so I believe that the Holy Spirit still speaks to us. And, and again, we, I think we see that in, in we, we see that application here in, in, this, in this chapter. Let's read together verses four through eight. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, "Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown." By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And so Jonah goes out to preach the message and look what happens. The people respond to God's word and faith. People respond to this. And so, you know, some of the question is like, well, is it genuine? I, I believe that it is because Matthew chapter 12, you have Jesus, I think, affirming the repentance of the Ninevites. Remember that we're going we're gonna to preach Matthew next year, um, but Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 is, is talking to the Pharisees and, and he's talking about the sign of Jonah. He's talking about the sign of Jonah. And Jesus says that they heard the message and repented. But now one better than Jonah is here with the message, and you are not repenting. So I think Jesus affirms the genuineness. And so there's, there's a lot. The Old Testament's really hard. It's really complicated because if you flip two books over to Nahum, Nineveh's wiped out. Nineveh gets destroyed. And so how exactly we, we, we um, bring those two things together, I don't know. I don't understand all of it. Do some study and please let me know, okay? Okay. Um, but this is, this is the people of Nineveh hearing the message of God and repenting and obeying. Not only the people, but look what it says. The king. The king obeys. The king says, we're gonna do this. And look what the king does. He immediately becomes a mouthpiece for God. <laughs> he's more faithful than the prophet. He's more, he's more of, a, of a proclaimer of the good news than the very prophet of God. In chapter one, disobedience leads to chaos and turmoil. In chapter three, obedience leads to repentance. We see that. We see that disobedience leads to chaos and turmoil. In chapter three, it leads to repentance. And so what's the lesson that we learn here? What's the lesson that we learn here? And it's this. And you're gonna hear this and you're gonna be like, amen. But let's really think about it. No one is beyond the grace of God. Some of you are afraid to say amen. Now you can say amen. Let's say amen. Amen. No one is beyond the grace of God, even the Ninevites, even the the, the Haitian people who have abducted these missionaries, not even the terrorists, wherever that may be. No one is beyond the grace of God. And I think Jonah is trying to, to establish something about the Ninevites for us to, to really understand that because we have certain people and groups in our mind today of, of who we think is beyond the grace of God and what Jonah is doing is saying, hey, Nineveh were some bad dudes. Nineveh is a, is a group of people and so I tend to, I tend to separate the world I'm saying me, and maybe you, maybe not you, but I tend to separate the world into categories of, of those who are likely to respond to God and those who, who will likely not respond to God. And let's be honest, it can be an easy, rational thing to do, right? I mean, I, I'm thinking of someone right now. I'm not gonna share who, who these people are, but I'm thinking of, of actually two individuals who, who work together, and one of them is someone that I have a burden to share the gospel with. And the other person in this place is someone that, man, when I go in, I just feel this wall. Like I just, like one of them feels really receptive. And one of them feels like, I'm just not even gonna spend my time. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even gonna, like I can't do it. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying in my mind, naturally, I have categories of those who I think could, respond to the gospel and those who could not. Now, we know that there are people in this world who will never respond to the gospel, right? We know there are people who will never respond in faith, but that's not up to me to decide, is it? I am called to share. I am called to be faithful in this. Nineveh was were those people. <laughs> they were those people. Jonah knew that. Jonah felt that way. No, I'm not going there. They were unlikely to repent. They were unlikely to humble themselves before the Lord. And so here's just a simple question for us to consider. Who have you written off as unsavable? Who have you written off? Maybe just someone in the news, maybe someone in your day-to-day life. Who have you written off as unsavable? Who have you stopped praying for? Let me just ask you this question and you don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever prayed for someone to come to know Jesus that you're not praying for anymore because they didn't come to know Jesus? Who do you need to start praying for to come to know Jesus? Maybe, it, maybe it's, let, let me flip this a little bit. Maybe it's you that you wonder if there's grace for. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's someone in your family, but, but maybe it's you that you wonder if there's really grace for, maybe you feel so distant from God or, or so irredeemable that God could not possibly save you, that there's too much water under the bridge, there's just too many things that have been, been broken for, for God to actually show mercy and grace to me. Can I just tell you, that's the story that Jonah is trying to correct in your hearts and minds today. That's the story that, that's the, that's the message that you're speaking to yourself that Jonah is saying, here's a better message, that yes, the mercy of God is, is for everyone and anyone who will come to him in faith. No one is beyond the grace and the mercy of God, even you. Sometimes that's the hardest thing to believe, right? No one's beyond the grace of God, even you. And that is really good news. Let's read together verses nine and 10. Things are about to get interesting, y'all. Who knows? God made turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So look at what the king doesn't do here. The message comes to the king, the message comes to the people of God, the king doesn't say, well, God has already said he'd destroy us, so, so what's the point of repenting? We see that in Jonah's message to them, right? We see that in the sermon, by the way, a five-word sermon from a disobedient prophet and a whole nation gets saved, if that doesn't support the sovereignty of God, I don't know what does. Five words, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then in chapter four, Jonah like goes and like puts his lawn chair up you know, pops his lawn chair out, sits up on the hill, watches down, and he's just like, this ain't gonna last, right? So not only that, he 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 kind of believes within him. He's just, God, I'll just do whatever you say. Begrudging obedience. Look at what the, the king doesn't doesn't do that. He doesn't say God's God's gonna destroy. So what's the point of repenting? No, the king says, who knows? I, I keep getting into chapter four. Chapter four, Jonah says. Uh, what does he say In, in verse two? I knew that you were a gracious God. The king says, who knows? Jonah says, I did know. And yet, who's the one who's obedient? The one who's maybe a little bit uncertain. And so what does God do in verse 10? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. In verse 10, God relents. So that's what he says, that's what the text says. He relented, He, t- he God relented of the disaster. Family, this is another vital lesson for us to see in that God is a responsive God, that God will respond to the cries and the repentance of his people. And, and this, this may be a dangerous word, dangerously limiting word to use, but God is responsive and he's not He's not rigid. He's not a rigid God. Yes, does God call us to holiness and God calls us to a way of life that is good? Yes. But he is a God who responds to the cries of of repentance from his people. If you will cry out to him, he will respond to us. And so we see here that, and the scripture tells us plainly that their repentance changed God's course of action against them here in this moment. Jonah said, 40 days, you're gonna be gone In 40 days, you're gonna be gone. And then they respond, and God relented from that disaster that he said he would do to them. So I don't know how much longer Nahum comes after Jonah, but at least within that 40-day window, God relented. Some versions say changed his mind on this. Now, we need to do a little bit of theological work here because you're like, hold on, how does this how does this go together so we need to do a little bit of theological work here because this hurts our brains and messes us all sorts of up right like okay and and here's what i mean by it some of you may not know what i'm talking about the scriptures want us to embrace and see and believe two fundamental truths about god and we're just jumping straight into this conversation god is completely and radically sovereign he is completely and radically sovereign. First Samuel 1529 says, and also the glory of Israel, which is God, if you go to your text, it's probably capitalized, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret, or again change his mind. Malachi 3 6 says, For I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the scriptures are clear about affirming the absolute sovereignty and the power of God. Not because this theologian said it or this theologian said it, but because the scriptures say it. The scriptures say it. And, and if it makes us uncomfortable we don't know what to do with it, that's fine. But we are going to submit to this truth about God that God is sovereign over everything if you you know what if God is not sovereign over everything he's not sovereign over anything you know that right like if there's if there's one thing that he's not sovereign over it's not that he's sovereign over like sovereign the word sovereign means sovereign i don't i don't know what it means <laughs> you know what it means if you know, the thing, God is, God is sovereign over everything or he is sovereign over nothing. He is the creator of all things and there is nothing beyond his scope or his power. This is one of the things that we are to embrace. Secondly, God is sovereign. Let's talk about this. In working out his own sovereign will, God interacts, it's kind of a fancy way of talking about free will, but in working out the sovereign will of His own will, God interacts dynamically with the world that He's created. He interacts with us, and so our choices. Listen to this: you need to you need to listen in. Our choices and our decisions affect how God's plans are realized and understood. Maybe, maybe, maybe not by God, because God is not limited. It, he doesn't. We don't teach God anything, but the way that God interacts with us is that our choices and that our decisions affect how God's plans are realized and understood in our own minds. And so we must embrace both of these truths in order to have a faithful and accurate view of God. Why? Because the scripture gives us both of these things. If it doesn't make sense, I, pretty, this is all I can do It's just tell you what the word says. The scriptures give countless examples of this message, right? The scriptures say over and over again in different places, even here, if you will from God, then I will. So, you know, like you've got you got the book of Jeremiah, you've even got the book of Jonah, where God is essentially saying, If you will turn, I will I will relent. I will show you mercy. I will not do the thing that I that I that I wanted to that I said that I would do. So one way that I've heard this framed is that God uses both the ends and the means to accomplish his will. So he, uses the, he, he, he sees the end and, and that's, that's what he's going to accomplish, but he also uses the means through, through which to get there. And so he's sovereign over the end, he's sovereign over the means, and he uses them both to accomplish his will. Does your head hurt yet? They're like, is this, all of our small group leaders right now are thinking, oh great, <laughs> like, gotta get into this conversation this week hey, maybe it should hurt our heads a little bit. This reminds us, church family, quite simply this, that we don't quite have God figured out. We don't have God boxed in. You know, he's, he doesn't bow to what we want to be true about him. And also, by the way, what we believe about him doesn't change him or affect him. So like, you don't believe he's sovereign? Guess what? He's not like, darn it. I guess I'm, I, He's he's not self-conscious like us. Um, Here's the way that the Westminster Confession tries to make sense of this in human terms. I love this. It's kind of like old language. I think it was like 400 years ago that the Westminster Confession came out, but it just helps us to understand a little bit around this. It says, I wish I would have had this on the screen. I'm sorry that I do not. I'll send it to you if you want although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, so God is the first cause, so you have a first cause and a second cause. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably. It means that they do not change. They're unchanging. And infallibly. So this is, a, this is an, an affirmation of the sovereignty of God in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let me just read that one more time because there's gonna be, an, I'm just kind of letting you know, there's three little sections. I'll hold my finger up when we, when we go through each section. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first things, the, the, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Yet by the same providence, he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. You're like, you've lost me. Third, God, in his ordinary providence, maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. This is a fancy way of saying God's gonna accomplish what he accomplishes, either with or without you. Sometimes he chooses to do it with you, sometimes he chooses to do it without you. So let me give you an illustration about what this might look like in my own life. Ready? JB, go get your shoes on. JB's not in here. I was kinda last week I used Gabe as an example, this week is JB. This happens a lot. Here's the illustration. JB, go get your shoes on. I, in this scenario, am the first cause. I have decreed that my seven-year-old, made a decree that my seven-year-old will obviously perfectly understand and obey, right? Wrong. If you're a parent, you know. No, this is gonna be a lot longer of a process than we need to, and if I need to, I'll send a fish to swallow him. So I've done this enough times that I know there's a lot of things that can happen, between what I have decreed and the fulfillment of what I have decreed, right? All of those things that may happen between what I decree and the fulfillment of my decree may not even necessarily be outright disobedience. Maybe he can't find his shoes. Maybe he can't find them. And he could have done something about that if he would have put them where they went, right? Maybe he can't find them. Maybe, which this is more common than you realize, maybe his brother decides it's time for a wrestling match and he doesn't quite get to the shoes. Maybe he gets distracted, and maybe he does disobey. There's a, all sorts of contingencies that can happen. There's a first cause and a second cause, but here's the deal. Ultimately, J.B. is going to get his shoes on, right? Even if I've got to do a lot of things between decreeing this thing and making sure that it happens, JB's going to get his shoes on because I have called him to get his shoes on we got to go. And he's going to get his shoes on. I'm not gonna be the bad parent that lets his kids walk through Walmart without shoes on. By the way, I'm just kidding. You're not a bad parent if you do that. My kids have actually done that. Uh, We have gotten to Walmart and I'm like, Bo, where are your shoes? He's like, I just was gonna ride in the basket. And so, if I gotta strap him down while he screams, he's gonna get the shoes, right? Now, obviously, this illustration has limitations. You're like... This doesn't, this doesn't quite work. But the point is this, is that God is the first cause of everything. If God says something's going to happen, it's gonna happen. Guess what? We see this in his call to the, to the Israelite people. Like, I'm making a covenant with you. And look even what he does. He says, normally in a covenant, it's kind of a two-sided thing. But God says, my glory is gonna get out to the, to the nations, to the world. And guess what? The people that God's making covenant with are not going to keep their side of the covenant, yet he still does it, right? And so God is the first cause of everything, but God chooses to work his will out through the choices and the responses of his people. And this is not less than sovereignty, this is part of sovereignty. One way that I heard this as I was studying this week is that God sometimes works through an intermediary Sometimes he works without an intermediary, and sometimes he works contrary to every intermediary. Sometimes he does it with you, sometimes he does it without you, and sometimes he does it even though everything is against what his will is. He's gonna do it. It's really important here to not disconnect this from the story of Jonah. We see how all this is playing out in the story of Jonah, right? Do we see that? Do we see that God in the opening passages, arise and go to Nineveh and call out against it. And Jonah does everything he can to disobey. And guess what? The message gets to Nineveh. So sometimes he'll do it with you. Sometimes he'll do it without you. Sometimes he'll do it in spite of you. And we have to understand that about what God wants to accomplish. But there's... There's actually grace in the fact that God works through an intermediary or second causes. There's grace in the fact that God chooses to use you to accomplish his will. I love how our friend uh, C.S. Lewis says it. I just grabbed Rick. He he knows. C.S. Lewis says it like this. For you will certainly carry out God's purpose, however you act, but it makes a difference to you whether you serve like Judas or like John. God's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. But your decisions and your choices matter. So I'll ask you again does your, does your head hurt? Is it making a little bit more Like, by the way, the goal here is not to make sense of sovereignty. We, we can't quite do that. So we summarize this way God is completely sovereign, and your choices and your decisions matter. Let this not hurt your brain, let it comfort your heart. Let it comfort you. Let it be something that says, man, isn't God good? We worship a God who is completely sovereign over the world. So so his sovereignty tells us that we can rest and we don't have to control everything. Man, if there's ever a time in our life where we have felt out of control, it's been now, right? Guess what? We can rest because God is in control of everything. Like what does tomorrow look like? I don't know. Like, I don't even know what two weeks ago looks like. So we worship a God who's completely sovereign over the world so we can rest and not to control everything. But we also worship a God who chooses to use us in his sovereign work in the world. And this tells us that our lives have priceless meaning and significance and purpose. What a comfort. The prayers that you pray and your obedience to God, they matter. They affect things in this world. We see that in the text. Everything you say, everything you do matters. So we believe lies of it's too late, or we believe the lies of I'm too far from God, or I've done too much, or I'm a failure. Can I just tell you something about this? These lies, they are not lies about yourself. You know who they're lies about? They're lies about God. When you live in shame, which, which we, we don't wanna pile on if you're feeling shame, by the way. If, you feel, if you're feeling shame in, in those lies that you, that, you, that you tell that I'm too far gone, that I, that I can't possibly get back into the grace of God, you know that that's not a lie about you. You know that what you are declaring is a lie about God because that's not true about God. God is a God full of compassion, And mercy, and who is ready to forgive, ready to pour on you his mercy. So, this is about God, this story, being able to redeem and interact and restore what has been broken and what feels irredeemable. The question is are we doomed or are we redeemed? Are we doomed or are we redeemed? The message of the gospel is this that God saves sinners and that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what we saw in chapter 2. So Jonah tells us these two things about God. No one is too far out of God's ability to save, and God is a God who responds to his people. And because of Jesus, like, think about this. The Ninevites, we're at a better advantage than them right now. We have Jesus. We have the the, the full written word of God. We have the church. We have Christian friends. The Ninevites didn't have Christian friends. They killed those people. We have Christian friends, we have community, we have all sorts of things. And and we are able to approach God in confidence, not with who knows, maybe God will be merciful, but because of what Christ has accomplished, we can say he will. He will be merciful. I know that he will be merciful because of what Christ has accomplished. Jonah was a, a, a begrudging prophet. We have a perfect prophet. We have a a savior who came and preached salvation and who was eager to preach salvation. Now, again, he spoke truth. He said, you do turn from your sin. But we have a joyful savior, not a begrudging prophet who we can look to and trust in, not to who we say who knows, but to who we say I know. And that's the, that is the boldness that we approach this table with. Every Sunday, when we come to the table, we say, I know that Christ can, I know that Christ will, and I know that Christ has. And that's what we are to understand from this chapter. And so if you would stand. We're gonna sing together, and as we sing, I'm just gonna, I say this every week, I'm gonna ask you to approach the table quickly and boldly. I know it's weird, like we all feel awkward. Who's, who's, Who's gonna take that first step? Take the first step. Take that first step and say, I am a recipient of the mercy of God, confident that he will save and that he can save. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your your mercy and your grace and your salvation to us. Lord, I pray that we would not be so shocked by the salvation of the Ninevites or so shocked by the salvation of who we deem unsavable that we would miss the miracle of our own salvation. I pray that we would have the, the posture that would say, if God can save me, he can save anyone. And so Lord, would, would we just come to you in that, in that humility and in that boldness this morning that you have saved us, you have redeemed us and that you are eager And ready to show mercy to those who will cry out to you. Lord, I pray for anyone in here who may not know you and may not trust you. That, Lord, that the the God that lays ahead of them in their their life is is the God of wrath. That if they were to, to look at where they are now, to the moment that that they would stand before you, that in that moment they would meet a, a, a God who, who has to pour wrath out on someone. And so may they, between now and then, come to a place that says, that says I put my trust in the Savior who took my wrath. I put my trust in the, in the, in the joyful King, the joyful Messiah who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because Lord, our sin cannot go unpunished. And so thank you for those that are in Jesus, that our sin has been fully paid for, fully satisfied, and that there is not an ounce of wrath waiting awaiting us. Our day of judgment is not in the future. Our day of judgment happened in the past. And so may we come to the table confident in that this morning and may those who don't know you turn towards you in faith and repentance, knowing that you will meet them right now with mercy and grace and you will save them. We pray these things in your name, amen.